Ask Anything, where we've taken uh, your questions about faith and life and attempt to respond to them using uh, a biblical lens. So today's question is, in a day that prioritizes and even idolizes work and hustle culture, what is the biblical relationship between work and rest? So the quick response to this is that God established a rhythm of work and rest, and as people made in the image of God, we were made to follow this. However, like everything good in our lives, we tend to twist work and rest into something that's no longer good, healthy, and beneficial. Uh, but before we dive into this, let's, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that we can gather together as, as family, uh, to worship you, uh, and to learn to view our lives through your lens. Stir our hearts this morning and guide us into a right relationship with work and an even deeper understanding of the rest that you call all of us to. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in an essay written in 1930, John Maynard Keynes, one of the fathers of modern-day economics, predicted that by the 21st century, the century we live in, we would be living with a 15-hour work week and enjoying the equivalent of a five-day weekend. As time went on, this view actually became more popular and in a 1957 New York Times article, Eric Barnow further predicted that as jobs became more and more automated, workers would increasingly look not to their jobs, but to their leisure for satisfaction, meaning, and expression in their lives. So if you look around in your own life, in the lives of others, how close are we really to that prediction? Like, not even close. Uh, concerning these predictions, automation has, has not led to greater freedom to pursue leisure, but often leads to job loss and stresses, and the stresses and burdens that that entails. With the increasingly digital nature of many of our jobs and the ability to telecommute, particularly now since COVID, a lot of us are experiencing greater flexibility on how and where we get work done, which is great and can be very positive. However, this erosion of work-home boundaries can actually lead many people to work more, not less. Not only this, but according to journalist and author Derek Thompson, a recent Pew Research report on youth anxiety found that 95% of teens said having a job or career they enjoy would be extremely or very important to them as an adult, ranking higher than any other priority, and that includes helping other people who are in need, which was at 81%, or getting married at 47%. Thompson's conclusion to that uh, report was that finding meaning at work beats family and kindness as the top ambition of today's young people. And so this actually shows the opposite of our previous prediction and that it would seem people are increasingly looking to their jobs, not their leisure, for satisfaction, meaning, and expression in their lives. Now, working and finding joy in what you do is not inherently wrong or evil. As humans, we're created in the image and likeness of God, 
And so we were created to actually work. We see in Genesis 1, God creating the world, declaring at the end of each day that what he made was good. And in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, it says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry around along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And in Genesis 2.15, we see that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, being made in the image of God is, is loaded. It's absolutely loaded with all kinds of important meaning. But one aspect is that we are called to work and create because that's what God is like. At the beginning of time, when everything was perfect, humanity was not to just sit around and do nothing. We were called to participate in and continue God's creation project, to tend to, to subdue, and cultivate God's good world in partnership with and submission to God. All of that would require a lot of work. So to work this way wasn't bad, it was actually good. However, this state of good work changed when humanity decided to no longer submit to God's ways, choosing their own way instead. They actually believed the lie that God was not good or one to be trusted. And so this choice ultimately broke humanity's relationship with God and with each other. And in Genesis chapter 3, God outlines the consequences of those actions, one of which actually has to do with humanity's relationship to work. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In a fallen world, work is now a struggle and burden. And this is something I'm sure all of us can understand and relate to. Work that was once easy and filled with joy and purpose is now hard and never-ending. What was once fully in humanity's control um, and used to benefit us, others, and all creation is now actually an oppressive master in our lives. And on one side of, this or one side of the spectrum is the constant toil of work as necessity. One degree or another, most of us work in order to put food on the table and clothes on our backs. People at the, uh, at the extreme end experience a stress and burden caused by severe lack that most of us here in this room uh, will never actually experience. However close you find yourself to this side of the spectrum, this type of work can mentally shape us to believe that our sole purpose as humans is to work, essentially reducing the image of God in us to a beast of burden. And if this becomes our way of viewing work, this can then spiritually shape us to believe provision for my life or my family comes not from God, but from me. 
The other side of the work spectrum is work as identity. Ultimately, this is the idolizing and worship of work, and we see the prevalence of this. One of the first questions that we ask uh, that new person we've just met in an attempt to stave off awkward silence is what? Yeah, what do you do? What do you do? Now, this question might seem harmless, and believe me, I've actually asked that question on countless occasions to avoid those awkward silences. I don't do great with awkward, awkward silences. Um, however, deep down, whether we mean to or not, this question is being used to shape my opinion and value of that person based on what they do for work and not because they were, they're simply made in the image of God. The idolizing, and, uh, the idolizing and worship of work is so prevalent in North American culture that journalist Derek Thompson uses the phrase, the gospel of work, the good news of work, defining it as the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. When we begin to believe that our identity comes from what we do, we place our faith in something that was never meant to have it and only sets us up for anxiety, disappointment, and burnout. We are not our job titles. We're not our salaries. We're not our side hustle because as Thompson so eloquently says, our desks were never meant to be our altars. When we worship at the altars of our careers, we are led to serve a different master other than Jesus, and ultimately, we worship, we become what we worship. So we either view work as a burdensome necessity or as an idolized identity and really everything else in between. And as a collective, I think we've actually recognized this for some time as humanity has repeatedly tried to break the curse of work or at least lessen its effects in our lives. I would argue that most technological advancement throughout history was done so in an effort to make work easier. From the wooden farm tools from thousands of years ago to the smartphone in most of our pockets. Attempting to break the curse of work, society eventually created the weekend as well. This started with Sundays and the biblical command for Sabbath rest, and that's actually something we'll look at uh, in a moment for the rest of our time. From this, though, the evolution of the weekend continued. Philip Sofer reveals in his article where the five-day work week came from that by the 19th century, some used the week's seventh day for merriment rather than for the rest prescribed by Scripture. They would drink, gamble, and enjoy themselves so much that the phenomenon of Saint Monday, in which workers would skip work to recover from Sunday's gallivanting, emerged. Factory owners later compromised with workers by giving them a half day on Saturday in exchange for guaranteed attendance at work on Monday. The dreaded Monday is something that obviously humanity has just held in our being since forever. This half day, though, eventually became a full day, and thus the weekend as we know it was born. And these days were actually, they were rightly fought for due to the terrible and exploitative work conditions that once were. However, just like our relationship with work, 
we often twist this opportunity to rest into something no longer good and beneficial. Because I know I'm not the only one here who uses their weekend to do the house chores or the yard work that I was just too busy to get to, to during the week. Or perhaps to get ahead on the work that needs doing the following week. Or if you have kids, you might be busily ferrying them from one extracurricular to the next. Either way, the weekend quickly devolves from an opportunity to rest into just another two days to fill with different work. But perhaps, if you're lucky, you find yourself sleeping in and lazily resting around the house. And we've all had those days, and they are absolutely glorious. Now, this is, this is a complete aside. Uh, parents of older kids, I have a toddler and an infant at home. Do those days actually ever come back? They do? Really? Oh, thank God. Okay. Um, our, ch- our youngest child's going through some kind of regression, so a couple nights ago he was up pretty much every 30 minutes, and it was... It was a joy, the joys of parenthood, right? Regardless, uh, even, even days like those, those lazy days, uh, often turn away from rest and devolve into distraction and escapist behaviors. What could have been a day of rest often turns into hours of Netflix or phone scrolling. And while entertainment and some distractions are, again, not inherently bad, how rested do you really feel after peeling yourself off the couch? If you're like me, you're actually more restless than rested. And this is because distractions from our work is not the same thing as rest from our work. As humans, we have a drive to work and a desire to rest, yet we often get lost in both and use them in ways they were never meant to be used. To know how to relate rightly to both, we actually need to first ask ourselves, how does God mean for us to relate to work and the rest we seek from it? And for that, we need to look back to the beginning of Genesis again, uh, as we see that God established a rhythm of work and rest. And so at the end of each day, again, in Genesis 1, God reflects on the goodness of his creation. Days 1 through 5 ends with, and God saw that it was good. However, at the end of the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God deems the completion of his creation very good. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work. That he had done in creation. Here at the completion of creation, we see that God stopped and rested. The Hebrew word here is Shabbat, and that's actually where we get the biblical word Sabbath from, and it literally means to cease, to stop, and then to rest. And it's from this state of rest that God, in Genesis 2.15, goes and puts the human he had made into the Garden of Eden to work it. And the Hebrew word used in 2.15 for put him in is nuach, and it means to dwell, to settle in, and to rest. This implies that from God's created state of Sabbath rest when he stopped, 
God then rests mankind into the garden to work it and keep it. And this shows that prior to humanity's disobedience, working within God's perpetual state of rest appears to have been the ideal and destiny for humanity. However, as we know, that's just not the world we live in today. Thankfully, we see God continually point to this rhythm of work and Sabbath, even expanding on its meaning throughout all of Scripture as he highlights the importance of this particular kind of rest. And so uh, for the next little bit, we're, we're actually going to uh, see how this theme of Sabbath rest is, is kind of traced throughout the whole Bible. Um, there's so much going on and there's so much more, like, I, I don't even know and we could even just dive into, that this is really just a, f- a view from 40,000 feet. So keep that in mind. Um, so fast forwarding to Exodus, after God miraculously rescues his people, the Israelites, from Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai before the journey back to the promised land he had given their ancestor and forefather, Abraham. And it's at Sinai that God gives them the Ten Commandments, outlining how the Israelites ought to live if they wish to remain as God's people. Now, the longest commandment, and the fact that it's the longest actually is meant to uh, kind of show us and highlight its importance, isn't about murder or idols or worship, but has to do with the Sabbath day of rest. Exodus 28 to 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested On the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here, God drives home the point that if they want to be his people, then they need to rest. And the only reason given here is simply because at the creation of the world, God saw that it was good to do so. We are then to be like the one in whose image we are made and rest from our work. In Deuteronomy 5, as the people of Israel are moments away from entering into the land that was promised them, Moses reminds the people of the covenant relationship God called them to live out. Once again, the practice of Sabbath, taking a day and stopping from their work, was important. However, this time, the rationale behind the practice is expanded upon with Moses saying that on the Sabbath, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Not only were the Israelites to observe the Sabbath because God stopped and rested, but they were also to remember that their past oppression and burdens while enslaved in Egypt. And now imagine how life-giving and even challenging these words would have been to a people group who had just spent the last 400 years as slaves working every day of their lives. Work is not the meaning and purpose of life. And true rest is found in God. 
And so the regular act of stopping and resting in the remembrance of God's rescue then was an important and formative practice to help them remember that. The theme of rest continues to be expanded upon when God establishes a special covenant relationship with Israel's king, David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that God will bring David and Israel rest and that he will establish an everlasting kingdom through one of David's descendants. And basically from that point, through the rest of the story in the Old Testament, this promise actually looks like it might not be fulfilled. As Israel continually disobeys God, even the kings from the line of David, the man after God's own heart, failed to be what they were called to be. So rather than living like the people, of, the people God called them to be, the Israelites lived as all the other nations around them. This ultimately brings them into the crosshairs of the world power at the time, Babylon. And in 597 BCE, the kingdom of Judah, what remained of the entire kingdom of Israel, is conquered and led away into exile. Now during this time of exile, once again, Sabbath rest becomes a promise for the future. The Old Testament prophets promise that despite their disobedience and exile, God will deliver his people once again. And in light of 2 Samuel 7, this rescue will come from an individual from the line of David as he ushers in a new kingdom, bringing his people back into the restful Sabbath presence of God. And this hoped-for individual and the theme of Sabbath rest ultimately culminates in the person of Jesus. We see this particularly well in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, when Jesus declares, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This was a provocative statement, particularly in Jesus' day. The the phrase, take my yoke upon you, was a common phrase used by rabbis when calling people to follow them and become their disciples. Their yoke was their particular interpretation and application of the scriptures. And by Jesus' day, common teaching on the Sabbath and the command to rest was pretty well set. The original command in Exodus to not do work on the seventh day was, and if you think about it, is uh, pretty ambiguous. What all falls under the category of work? What What does work mean, even mean? And so in an attempt to bring clarity... Religious leaders and teachers over time formulated a list of what is deemed as work and ought to be avoided on the Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees and other religious leaders' intentions in this were actually very good. The Pharisees really get a a bad rap. Um, Jesus harps on them all the time. Uh, Some scholars think, though, that's because of how close they actually were to kind of getting it, but they just didn't get it, and so Jesus was frustrated with that. Um, But anyway, they, they believed that in order for God to usher in his kingdom, his chosen people, the Israelites then, needed to return to covenant faithfulness by following the laws God had given them to the letter. So by adding this list of what constituted as work, they had hoped to kind of set up boundaries that would prevent anyone from actually breaking the command to rest on the Sabbath day, thus, you know, obeying the Sabbath. However, 
many of these restrictions only added to the burdens of, uh, sorry, to the burdens the Jewish people felt on any given day. This turned the Sabbath day uh, into an oppressive burden rather than a day to rest because God rested. Or a day that served as a reminder that God rescued them from slavery and oppression. Or a day that pointed to a future renewal uh, and rest found in God's eternal presence. Understanding the intentions of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can see how to them the call to follow a different way was viewed as dangerous. Hence the provocative nature of Jesus' call to take up his yoke and to find rest in him. Which is why we see in the next chapter, Matthew 12, the Pharisees getting upset, uh, not at Jesus, but at Jesus' disciples for picking heads of grain to eat while they were walking through the field. To them, this was clearly breaking the command to rest, or at least their interpretation and rules surrounding that command. However, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to point to the true meaning and right interpretation of Sabbath by ultimately declaring in Matthew 12, 8, for the Son of Man, Jesus' kind of favorite title of himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Essentially telling them that he is the one, their scriptures, uh, our Old Testament, and all the practices and laws that are kind of a part of that are ultimately pointing to him. And in another account of this very same scene, Mark adds Jesus saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus has and had no issue with the practicing of Sabbath, but he had an issue with how the religious leaders told people to practice it. Through them and their yoke, Sabbath brought greater burden, but through Jesus and his yoke, Sabbath brings rest. To Jesus, Sabbath, a day to stop and rest, is not just a command given by God but is an invitation to experience the rest we are all invited to in and through him now. Not only that, but this Sabbath rest now points to the future rest all who call on Jesus will experience. In Revelation 21, we see a new creation alluding back to God's initial creation in Genesis 1 and 2. With the coming of this new heaven and new earth, God declares from his throne, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This scene is meant to draw our imaginations back to the beginnings of Genesis and the rest experienced in the Garden of Eden. Just as God dwelt with humanity at the beginning, bringing them, settling them into his rest, the new humanity made in the image of Jesus will again be brought into God's restful Sabbath presence as we were meant to be. Like the Israelites of the Old Testament, the right practice of a Sabbath today can be a life-giving, formative, and even transformative practice, inviting us into the rest Jesus has for us now and pointing us to the rest that will come. Now, just to make things clear, 
this particular practice is no longer an outright command, and whether we practice it or not, it has no bearing on our right standing with God. Jesus and what he has done is enough for that. However, it is one of the Ten Commandments, and we are called to uphold all the other ones. So I think that ought to make us pause and think before we write off engaging in a day completely devoted to rest. Wayne Muller, in his book on Sabbath, has this to say, in the relentless busyness of modern life, we have lost the rhythm between work and rest. All life requires a rhythm of rest. There is a rhythm in our waking activity and the body's need for sleep, unless you're a parent of a young child. There is a rhythm as the active growth of spring and summer is quieted by the necessary dormancy of fall and winter. In our bodies, the heart perceptibly rests after each life-giving beat. The lungs rest between the exhale and the inhale. We have lost this essential rhythm. Because we do not rest, we lose our way. We miss the quiet that would give us wisdom. We miss the joy and love born of effortless delight. Poisoned by this hypnotic belief that good things come only through unceasing determination and tireless effort, we can never truly rest. And for want of rest, our lives are in danger. Sabbath rest may no longer be a command, but it is something we are invited into, and if we are to become more like Jesus and the people God calls us to be, then this invitation is one of God's good gifts to wisely guide us along this process. So, how can we practice Sabbath faithfully in our lives today? Pastor and author Peter Scazzaro offers four principles that I think can actually be really helpful to shape our Sabbath day around, and these are stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. Sabbath is first and foremost a day to stop. Once again, the Hebrew word that we get Sabbath from literally means to cease, to stop. And whether we have crossed off everything on our to-do lists or not, we are called to stop. When we do, the Holy Spirit is free to begin reorienting our hearts and minds to the reality that it's God on the throne and in control of the world, and that our world will not fall apart simply because we have ceased to act in it. Our stopping invites us to trust God rather than ourselves. Once we stop, we're then called to rest, to rest from our work, from being hurried, from worrying, easier said than done, from catching up on errands, even rest from technology and whichever screens takes up our time. What we rest from is actually going to look different for each of us. And this was one of the issues present with the way the Pharisees regulated resting from work. They tried to come at it with a one-size-fits-all approach, but the reality is one person's work might be another person's restful activity. 
As much as I love the idea of tending a garden and growing vegetables and herbs, it's back-breaking work for me. I love the idea, but I absolutely hate the work. My mother-in-law, on the other hand, has a giant garden that she joyfully tends to and actually finds rest, somehow, from the busyness of life by retreating to her garden. And because one size does not fit all, we need to spend time reflecting on what the activities are in our lives that do not give us rest and that we need to put aside for an entire day. These things can be obvious, things like, like what is your 9 to 5 or your shift work job? That's, that's an obvious one. But sometimes these things can be tricky because we think something gives us rest when it actually doesn't. Like I mentioned previously, does hours on the couch watching Netflix really make you feel rested, deeply, deeply rested and ready for your day? Most likely, this is actually something we all need rest from. Once we've stopped and rested from our work, whatever that is, we're invited to delight. With the time that's now been freed, we are to engage in things that bring us deep joy and delight. And this will actually be hard for some of us because of the constant going of life. We've never actually stopped uh, and figured out what are the things that bring joy in and that we find joy in. And so it's okay to trial and error. Figure it out. Reflect on the things that bring you joy. Reflect on, oh, I thought that brought me joy, but it actually doesn't. But in Sabbath, we are called to enjoy God's creation and the gifts he's given us. So perhaps uh, a walk, perhaps a nap, or read a book, spend some time with friends, connect deeply with your spouse, go on an adventure with your kids, cook a good meal, eat a good meal. Whatever restful activities you engage in, savor them and enjoy them. God also calls us to delight in a different pace of life. It's wild that there's now something called hurry sickness. It's not like diagnosable, but it is out there, and which is a pattern of continual rushing, anxiousness, and a continual sense of urgency to the point of frustration if we deem anything getting in our way. I found and read that, that definition, and I was immediately convicted. I absolutely have this. Um, I even had this on the way to church, confession time. Um, but through Sabbath, God invites us to slow down, to operate in life at a completely different pace, to put urgency aside, and to not be rushed like we tend to be every other day of the week. God's given us so much that he wants us to enjoy. We just need to figure it out, slow down, and then enjoy it. And finally, we're to contemplate. Not on everything and everything, but on God. We're to remember that what we find true delight in is a gift from God and is meant to point us back to him in thankfulness and worship. Spend some time in prayer or reading your Bible as a means to draw your attention back to God and offer him your thanks for the good he's given you. Not only this, but the joy we experience on a Sabbath is meant to be a taste 
of what's to come in the future. And so contemplating on this allows the Spirit to reshape the story that we live the other six days of the week and be slowly transformed more into the image of Jesus, preparing us for an eternity spent in God's restful Sabbath presence. Now, ironically enough, to put Sabbath like this into practice well, it's actually going to require planning and some work beforehand. Often, I've found this for myself, I'm sure lots of you have as well, when we go into something we're not used to without some kind of plan in place, we tend to just flounder and kind of aimlessly wander. And if that happens, particularly with like a spiritual practice like Sabbath, uh, we're more likely to get discouraged, uh, think that we've just done Sabbath wrong, or that it's just not for me and move on completely missing the joy and transformation that can come from this. So to help uh, your planning, determine what day of the week will work best for you. A traditional Jewish Sabbath, the Sabbath likely practiced by Jesus himself, starts sundown on Friday night and lasts until sundown Saturday evening. And for many of us, that might actually work, or we can just carry it over to the Saturday-Sunday nights. Others of you might work shift work, so maybe your Sabbath day is one of the weekends, or sorry, weekdays you have off, or maybe you need to kind of alternate, you know, one weekend your Sabbath is on Saturday, and the other week it's on Friday. Ultimately, the day doesn't matter. It's actually setting aside a whole day that's important and regularly returning to it after six days of work. And then we're called to protect this day, or as scripture says, keep it holy, which just means set apart, different than the other days, protected. Then make plans, shop, or do whatever you need to do so that when the day arrives, you're actually free to stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. Lastly, uh, it's crucial we actually take into account our stage of life. Practicing Sabbath as a university student living on your own or at home will look different than if you're a family with small kids or a retired empty nester, and that's completely okay. Make a plan that's appropriate for your life situation, experiment, and follow it for a month or two before reflecting again on what needs to change, and then just keep on practicing. Christian philosopher Dallas Willard in his writings on spiritual formation synthesized a common understanding on growing in faith and in likeness to Jesus that's been held throughout all of church history that we've actually kind of lost today, and that is, it's not about trying, but it's about training. Sabbath and any spiritual practice actually requires some effort, and it won't just happen on its own. It's going to require growing into. It's going to require starting where you actually are, not where you hope to be, and slowly working your way uh, with the Spirit through into a a deeper kind of practice of of Sabbath. So to, to conclude, Sabbath isn't just a day off but a means for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives as our response to Jesus when we hear him say, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. This is a call for everyone, no matter who you are. Perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't uh, actually consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You might be 
feeling the burdens of life with the world calling you to work endlessly, to find and place your identity in what you do. And you might have actually experienced the restlessness that comes from the things the world calls us to rest in. If that's you and you're ready for a different way, I invite you to come to Jesus and experience the rest he has to offer by following him and his way. And if you're here this morning and you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, whether you're brand new or have been following Jesus for decades, I invite you to enter into the practice of Sabbath. Figure out and make a plan to regularly put aside an entire day to stop, rest, delight, and contemplate. The life of a Christian is not white-knuckling it, holding on for dear life, hoping we just make it to the end. There is rest found in Jesus that he wants us to experience now, while also shaping our hearts and minds to look forward with hope to the ultimate rest we will have in Christ, living in God's eternal presence. When we commit to live by the Sabbath rhythm of God, he will speak to us, telling us that our work may be important, but it is not our purpose or identity, and that the rest we crave for can and will be satisfied in him. And as he speaks, we will be shaped into restful people who look more and more like Jesus in a world that prioritizes and idolizes work. So let's pray. Father, we just, uh, we thank you for your rhythm of Sabbath, that you care deeply for who we are in you, and that's not to just work and work and work endlessly, that you've made a way to save us from the curse of our Uh, of our decisions in work. Holy Spirit, lead us into the practice of Sabbath and may it lead us more deeply into the rest that is found in you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, You can all stand like we always do here at Seoul. In ancient times, the one who blessed raised their hands and those wanting to receive a blessing did likewise. So Seoul Sanctuary... May we stop from our endless toil and learn to trust in God. May we find rest from that which tires us. May we delight in the good things God has given us. And may we contemplate on these things in a way that draws our hearts and minds to God in thankfulness and worship. Now go, live the church, and you're all invited back here next week. Do we clap for preaching? I don't know. Like, <laughs> but don't, no. That's not actually a thing to actually clap. Please, God. <laughs>